we'll be turning to Mark chapter 14 tonight. And as we get there, I want to remember that last week as we studied, uh, we got up to verse 26. And Jesus and his disciples, they had prepared and they had celebrated Passover. It was something in the Hebrew culture called Pesach. And all it was was the celebration during the time where they remembered where God, when he started them as a nation, formally, and he brought them out of Egypt, he, uh, he brought them out through miraculous ways. And one of the ways he did it was um, by the Passover. And the Passover we talked about last week is just that remembrance of when God specifically had plagued the nation of Israel several ways. And then the final straw was basically, he said, if you, um, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to take your firstborn of every household in Egypt. And so a lot of people see this as very harsh, but God was protecting his people because they had been in bondage for over 400 years, which I think is interesting too, because God did not know that that was coming. We were just reading in Genesis this morning where um, God had actually told Abraham, uh, your descendants will go into a land, they will, it will not be their land, and they will be in bondage for 400 years. He told him that. So when the time was right, he brought them out of that land because during that time that his people were in Egypt, basically what he had told them was, I don't want to take you out of that land because I promised you the land of the Canaanites. But if I take you out of that land right now and I put you in the land of the Canaanites, I'm giving them basically 400 years to repent before I'm going to send you in to battle them and defeat them. So God is long-suffering in all generations, especially with those who haven't been given as much light, especially as the Israelites. So as they remembered this Passover last week, you'll remember that Jesus told them, go into town, and when you go into town, there's going to be a man carrying water on his, he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Follow that man, go into the house. When you go into the house, what you'll find is you'll find the master of the house, and I want you to ask him, where's the, where's the room where we may have a Passover feast? And many surmise that basically the guy that owned the house was the parents of Mark, which we're reading the gospel written according to John Mark, as it was told to him by the Apostle Peter, who saw everything. But many surmised that it was Mark, but also they surmised that this house was Mark's parents' house. And so they look at it and they go, okay, this was a disciple of Jesus, because otherwise he wouldn't have requested to be able to use the house, although they're very hospitable in the Eastern culture. So they simply, at Jesus' leading, they partook of this supper. When they got there, they prepared it, and then they were in a furnished room and they took the supper. And he taught them to practice this, what we call communion today, to them it was the first time. It was Jesus' last supper, but as the church it was our first supper. Basically, he taught them to take of the blood of the cup and then the bread. The, looking, at the, the, looking forward to the broken body of Jesus given up on the cross. And then the blood that was shed as a, a, a way to make right what we had done wrong by sinning. When we fell during the fall, basically um, in Leviticus it says, without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so because of that, Jesus gave up his holy blood and he says, you know what? I will give you my holy blood, I will give you my righteousness in return for you giving me your filthy rags. And it's interesting to me because oftentimes we think we have something to offer God when all we had to offer to begin with to start the relationship was our sin. And he said, that's fine. Give me your sin. I will put it on my son and I'll pour out my wrath upon him as a payment for that sin and he will give you his righteousness. And I don't know about you guys, but that's a pretty good deal because 
as I was just singing some of those songs, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, I was thinking about how many sins I've been forgiven and how long-suffering that God was with me. Because even at my best days, as I would call them, I was doing some pretty nasty stuff, and it was all sins against God, and He was willing to forgive me. So this feast that they take of, this Passover, is now being changed. Jesus is instituting what He calls the Lord's Supper, and as we practice the Lord's Supper, we do this until He returns. It proclaims that Jesus did in fact die and that He's returning. Because when He returns, what He's going to do is He's going to invite us who believe to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is mentioned in Revelation 19. But we'll leave that for a whole other Bible study because that's an that's a interesting topic in and of itself. So verse 26 in Mark chapter 14 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. Now typically when they would get done with this feast, they would have read Psalm 115 through Psalm 118, or they would also uh, not just read it, but these are songs. That's what a psalm is. They would sing Psalm 136. And if you think about it later, uh, just give a, a glance over Psalm 136. It's not like one of the long ones, like Psalm 119. But it's basically, all it is, is it's a remembrance of what God did when He literally brought them out of Egypt. And oftentimes I think we get in, in down times where things happen, whether we're stuck in the house because of snow and stuff's going on, or whether you know, something major happens, like you lose a loved one. Or maybe you're going through a trial. You know, I know a lot of people that have just lost their jobs. Um, it's interesting to me when you think about that thing and you get so focused in on it, what happens is you focus in on it so much that you, it brings you down. You get in a spot where you're like, man, I, I don't even remember any day where I had a good day. But the funny thing is, is if you remember what God has already done in your life, you can look forward and go, he was faithful back then. He didn't do it for no reason. He's going to be faithful tomorrow. He's going to be faithful in this day. I just don't know how yet. And that's what they were celebrating in the Passover. And what they did in the Passover is they would, they would kill the lamb and they would celebrate this meal and their kids would go, why are we doing this? Why do we do this every year? And then the parents, hopefully, they would know why rather than just a ritual. And they'd go, well, here's why. Because back when we were in bondage in Egypt, they go, we were in bondage? And they could remind them all of the things that God brought them through as far as trials. And that's a good thing because when, God, when we're reminded of God's faithfulness, like I said, we can move till tomorrow and go, God's going to be faithful today. I just haven't seen the results of it yet. So this is what they were doing when they practiced it. So to sing this song is not just a, a practice or a ritual. It's like they were reminding themselves again. And that's why we sing worship songs. Because a lot of the things that people write down in worship songs are just reminders of God's faithfulness, who He is, who we are, what He has done for us. And then when we worship Him, it's a response to taking of the Passover, reminding themselves. And then we now, as we take the Lord's Supper, we usually have a time of contemplation during that where we are able to pray and go, Lord, am I living up to what your sacrifice cost you to purchase my life? And so, verse 27 it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So remember that Jesus is in his last week of life here on earth. And as he's in his last week of life, he's telling them, and he has been telling them for the last three years, they haven't heard it, 
they've heard the words, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. He told, remember, he told Peter, he said, I'm going to be given over to the hands of men. They're going to kill me. And they're going to unjustly put me to trial. And then the result of that will be they'll, they'll kill me. So he said, uh, you know, Peter looked at him and he said, not so, Lord. Because remember, Peter's been following him for all this time. So to have your leader in any way to look at you and go, hey, I know you've been following me for the last couple of years, but I'm just going to die here shortly. It'd be kind of a bewildering inst- instance, right? And so he's going, no, Lord, you can't, you can't die on me. I've been following you. I've given up everything to follow you. And he said, not so, Lord. And remember that that, that term, that phrase, is, it's an impossible phrase. It's, it's, it's like saying to your boss, hey, boss, I, I'm going to tell you what to do. Well, they don't, you know, we don't get to do that. Oftentimes, they let us kind of speak to them and speak into their lives a little bit. But oftentimes, they get the final say, the decision that's going to be made. And so to tell Jesus, Lord, saying, Master, sir, you know, I'm your servant, you're my master, uh, you can't do this. You wouldn't do that as a slave, as a bond slave. And so he, he's in a pickle here because um, Jesus is telling them, I kind of jumped ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus is in a pickle here because he's got two goals. Number one, he came to die for the sins of the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. So he, that's his number one goal. But he's got another goal. He's got these 12 men that he's discipling, he's teaching, and he's teaching them all the things that he knows from the Father, so that when he leaves, he's not leaving everybody and going, okay, well, I'm done. But he's leaving seeds in the ground that will sprout up and invest in other people. Jesus discipled men in the hopes that when he left, they would disciple other men and women. And then when they left, they would disciple other men and women. Because Christianity is always one generation from death. But at the same time, God is not dead. So he's reaching people in every generation. But the desire is that he would scatter seed on the ground, and then as people die, that they're, um, basically that what they would leave behind would be their faith, and they would invest in other people, and that those people's faith would do the same. So Jesus' second goal is to invest in these 12 guys. So when he invests in these 12 guys, and then he says, I'm going to die, he's not leaving them, but he's going to lead the Holy Spirit to inspire them to, to lead them. So he warns, the, um, he warns the disciples one last time that on this night, they're going to be stumbled. They're going to be a little bit confused. They're going to be basically uh, left feeling like they're alone. And he tells them it was foretold. He doesn't just tell them, hey, I'm going to be struck tonight. You guys are all going to scatter. He, just, he says, hey, this was foretold. And he refers back to a passage that was in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But he says here, he says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, in verse 27. Now, I read that verse, and it's prophecy, and I'm not, (laughs) I struggle with prophecy, because there's always two elements. There's always something that the prophet was telling the people that were alive in that day that he was speaking to, but there's always a future element that's referring to something that's going to happen in the future. And so oftentimes you get all these different interpretations, but there's always one intended interpretation because God is not the author of confusion. He has one reason for telling people. And so what I asked myself the question, I said, who's the shepherd he's talking about? He says, I will strike the shepherd. 
Well, we know that that's Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd, according to John chapter 10, verse 11. And the sheep will be scattered. So who are the sheep? Well, the sheep we're going to find out are the disciples, those that are following Jesus. They're, they're his sheep. They're the ones that are following him. They're the ones that are listening to his every word. They know his voice. So, but the other question I have is, who's the I? I will strike the shepherd. Well, a lot of people would disagree with this that don't understand scripture, but this is God himself that was going to strike his own shepherd. And it says that there, uh, but it, this is God the Father speaking through the prophet Zechariah, explaining who it was that would be striking Jesus. Because oftentimes people don't understand that it was God's will for Jesus to die. If you've ever listened to any prosperity teaching, anybody where they're like, hey, God's all about making sure that you're healthy and wealthy. This would, this would be uh, basically flies in the face of those that believe that because it was God's will that Jesus would be punished. His own son, he would be punished for my sins. Now, to me, that doesn't speak about health and wealth. That speaks about picking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We've said this over and over again. It's the theme of the book of Mark. It says, for not even the... Yeah, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. To serve... And to sacrifice. And that's what the life of a Christian should look like because we should look like Jesus in the way that he lived. Now, we won't die for the sins of the world, but it might call for us to die to what our plans were for the day. God changes things up a little bit for us. We might have to die to what we had planned. But it was the wrath of God that would be poured out on Jesus because God is holy. He can't even look upon sin. He must do justice, otherwise he's not holy. He's not capable but he's perfect, and that standard is perfection, and he cannot compromise. God doesn't compromise. Compromise leads to corruption, and God is not corrupt. He's incorruptible. He must judge sin, so it pleased God to judge sin on his son, and in order to pave the way for you and I to have access granted to us through faith in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks about this same theme. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement, or the punishment, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. And then verse 10 continues, and it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, excuse me, he has put him to grief. It pleased God to bruise his son. I don't know about you guys, but I cannot wrap my mind around that. I can't wrap my mind around a God who was willing to, in order to restore fellowship between him and his creation, people, that he would be willing to put up his own son in place. I think about that personally because that would be like me saying, hey, if I was God, and I'm not, not, it's just an example, but I'm saying it would be like me saying, hey, you know what, I, I really love those people over there that hate me. And so I'm going to take my daughter and I'm going to put her up to death so that they can go free from their sins or from something they've done against me. And it's amazing to me because that's the kind of love that the world doesn't have. So Jesus had, in his time with his disciples, referred to himself as that good shepherd according to John chapter 11. And any good shepherd 
one who loved his flock. If you think about uh, agrarian society, a society where you have animals and you're taking care of them and you eat the meat and you, you shear the, the wool from the sheep. Um, any good shepherd in those days, one who loved his flock, would fight off lions, wolves, or any other predator that would threaten his sheep. He would do so even if it meant that he himself might be injured or killed. Now he makes that contrast when he talks about sheep. He says, but not so for a hireling, somebody that maybe didn't own the sheep but was paid to keep the sheep. They wouldn't be willing to lay their life down in order to save the sheep. They go, hey, this isn't worth the paycheck. But Jesus said, you are my sheep. I'm willing to die in your place. And so, but even though the shepherd would die in defending his sheep, if he dies, the sheep will be distraught, right? Because what does a shepherd do? They feed their sheep. They uh, groom them. They anoint their heads with oil to keep the flies out of their eyes. They make sure that they have green pastures. That's what Psalm 23 is about. He makes them lie down in green pastures. If they're really uh, sketchy and they're skittish because they've seen an, a wolf that night or something, sheep are no good if they're skittish. They won't do anything. They won't, they won't eat, and so they'll get sick. And so the shepherd oftentimes would actually sing a song or play music. That's why King David was such a good shepherd. He would play music to make sure his sheep were calm. Because if sheep aren't calm, not only do they worry themselves to death, but they also get sick and they wander off. Also, a good shepherd will make sure that they uh, defend, or uh, not just defend, but also correct their sheep. God is the good shepherd, and so Jesus would even correct his disciples when they were doing wrong. He would, uh, love is not love that says, hey, you know what, you're sinning, but that's okay. It's a corrective love. The rod and the staff, they comfort me. That's what Psalm 23 says. Well, that rod wasn't like a, a rod to beat away stuff, although many times it got used that way. That rod would be used to, for a good shepherd, sometimes would take their sheep, break their legs. If, they, if it was a sheep that would wander off all the time, the shepherd would say, you know what? You've done this too many times. I love you. I'm going to break your leg. And then that shepherd would take that sheep and throw it up over his shoulders, and he would wander around. And as they went everywhere, that sheep would get used to him taking care of him, would feed him from his hand. And then as it healed and bound up his wounds, that sheep would no, always stay close to the shepherd afterwards because he realized how much he needed him. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, has all of these qualities. And not only that, but the good shepherd smells like the sheep. Kind of like kids get used to their mom's smell. You know, They know the shepherd's voice. They know every little thing about the shepherd. They get used to being in fellowship with him. And so Jesus had done this with his disciples. So as he was doing that with his disciples, they were all of a sudden being told, hey, I got to go. I'm going to leave you. But don't worry, I'm going to send the comforter. But notice what he said there. If I can find the verse. Verse 28 said, 27 said, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's the bad news. Verse 28 says, But, I love that. But, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus never once told his disciples that he was going to die without telling them right after that, but I will, ra- I will live again. I will be raised. And when I'm raised, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Now, a little note, isn't it interesting that Jesus knew that when they scattered, he told them, you're going to scatter. And then when he told them that they were going to scatter, he also knew that where they would go. 
Where did Peter, James, and John come from? They came from Galilee. What were they doing? They were fishermen. He knew before they even did it that when he was struck and they scattered, they'd just go, well, I guess we'll go back to fishing. So he said, I'll go before you even go there. I'll meet you there. So that was kind of an interesting note as I was thinking about this passage. So verse 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, Peter did, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, likewise. Isn't it interesting that Peter would speak up before anybody else, stick his foot in his mouth, and then they would all follow him. They're like, yeah, we're with, we're with Peter. You know, He said, oh, I, I won't be made to stumble. This was a pattern in Peter's life. Jesus would tell Peter something, and every time Peter would say, nope, that won't happen. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have a dad who tells me things all the time, and I always go, nah, never happened. And every time I stick my foot in my mouth, or I don't, by not saying anything and ignoring his advice. For instance, my dad told me when we bought the house down here in Ironton, hey, it's an old house, it's got old clay pipes, there's maple trees in the backyard. What you need to do, first and foremost, before you do anything else, is you need to auger out or have augered out that septic line or that sewer line. Because you're going to get a bunch of people over. There's going to be roots in that clay tile. And as soon as you get a good amount of water going through there and solid waste, that thing is going to stop up. And I said, yeah, that's probably pretty good advice. I mean, all the conditions are perfect. And then I got busy. And I didn't do it. I didn't want to spend the money to do it, right? And so I ignored the advice. And over time, what happened was last night, we found out that we can't flush our toilets without the water not wanting to go down. So that's not a problem, right? And God's working out all those details. That's been kind of the thing God's trying to teach me through lately. And today we got a plumber out there, and I think we're going to have to replace the whole line. And no matter what it costs, God's going to provide because he gave us the house. Um, but how often is it that somebody tells us something, somebody that has a position of authority in our lives, and we're like, yeah, I don't need to really listen to that. You know, oh, that sounds good, but nah, I'll be good. I won't succumb to that. But how much more when Jesus shows us something and we're like, Lord, show us something, show us something neat. And he shows us something and we're like, oh, well, that's not going to happen. I won't fall to that temptation. And Peter over and over again had been told, hey, it's not going to go well for you. Just listen to me. I'm telling you ahead of time. And how cool would it be and how rough people are on Peter all the time because over and over again, Jesus tells him specific things. He doesn't have to wait in prayer. He doesn't have to... Um, you know, he doesn't have to go off of signs. He doesn't, Peter had Jesus standing there right in front of him and said, hey, this is going to happen. And Peter said, nah, I probably won't. But oftentimes we do the same thing. I think in Peter's spot, I would have done the same thing just due to the fact that I did it just this last three months. But Peter had made a pattern and a habit of not listening to the Lord. And when the Lord showed him something, he would ignore it or say that won't happen and, and say not so, Lord. But uh, the first point I want to make is if we're not careful, we can end up being pretty rough on Peter. I'm pretty sure that if I was in Peter's spot, I'd gone through the same thing. 
And uh, so that's encouraging to me. First of all, that the Lord picks people that don't listen to him. God picked Peter knowing that Peter would have a tendency not to listen. And yet he still picked him, and God's patient. So I like that about the fact that the Bible is honest about all its characters. It doesn't say they're perfect. It says their God is perfect, and he's patient. I like that. Now, I wish he didn't have to be so patient with me. But uh, secondly, I want to point out that Peter is already denying the Lord. He says, by tonight, you will deny me three times, right? Peter said, no, I won't. (laughs) That phrase in itself is a denial of what the Lord was showing him. So being a disciple of Jesus means that you're open to receiving whatever he might teach you or show you, even if at first you don't see or disagree, or maybe at first you disagree and you don't quite understand what he's trying to show you. You see, in order to call Jesus your Lord, you have to be willing to submit to what he shows you. And I think that's the point that I kind of pretty much already made. But uh, remember the Lord's prayer or the pattern for prayer that he gave them. He said, Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be, or holy, is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. One of the ways that God leads us in this life is He leads us not into temptation. That's what He tells us to pray. That's his will, that we wouldn't be led into temptation. But I think oftentimes we think that he led us into temptation when really we got there on our own. He warned us, it was coming, and we ignored it. And then next thing you know, Peter's going to be tempted to deny the Lord. So one of the major parts of this is to lead us not into temptation. And even though Jesus told him that he would be led into temptation, he warns Peter, and Peter says, oh, that's no big deal, I'll be fine. If you don't listen to his voice, and you listen to his guidance as a shepherd, excuse me, if you don't listen to his voice, or listen for his voice, that's something that I've been kind of trying to learn this year. Um, I've spent a lot of time reading the Bible. And I'm not saying this to boast, but every year since I started walking with the Lord, um, there's been somebody that said, hey, why don't you read through the Word this year? And so I have. And that's, that's good, right? We need to know God's word. We need to read it. But this year, the Lord's like, okay, you, you've done good. You're reading my word. Now, this year, I want you to read it and listen. I want you to spend time listening to what I want to show you this day. Because oftentimes, I think people think that God doesn't want to speak to them or something. Or that maybe that's the way that we act. We, we read his word and we pray. And we, we pray a lot and we speak a lot, but we don't always listen a lot. And if Peter would have just simply listened to what God had said here, it would have kept him from a lot of trial. It would have kept him out of trouble. And that's the one thing, if you could take away from this evening, listen to the Lord. Jesus knows you. And we were singing earlier in one of the songs that said, uh, high above my uh, sight and high above my life, I will live for you alone or I will trust in you alone. And Proverbs chapter 3, I quote it all the time, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. And Peter's path could have been directed away from this temptation of denying him had he just listened. Instead, he, denied, he lived on his own uh, understanding. But notice here that after Peter speaks up, the Lord stops warning him and he lets it go. He doesn't keep telling him. He doesn't repeat himself over and over again. He just goes, okay, 
You can handle it. And Peter shuts his ears from listening to Jesus' warning, so Jesus just lets him be. But that's a scary place to be as a Christian, is in a spot where you no longer listen for the voice of the Lord. So verse 32 says, Then they came to a place where was, which was named Gethsemane, which just means olive press. And he said to his disciples, he said, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. Those were the three that spent the most up-close time with Jesus. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. This was Jesus. Verse 34, Then he said to them, He told his disciples, Jesus, God in the flesh, told his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He says, Stay here and watch. Now I looked up that word watch. It just means to keep awake. Be sober, be vigilant, kind of like a, a watchman that's guarding a gate to something, and pray. It's meant to, to be awake, notice what's going on, and pray. Verse 35, he went a little farther, fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, this was his prayer, and I think it's amazing to see it. Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. First of all, Abba Father means like what we would say to our parents or our mom or our dad. Mommy, Daddy. Abba Father means Daddy. It was a very intimate tone that he was using. He says to him, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is the point at which Jesus, once again, he surrenders all. He says, Lord, if there's any other way that your people can be saved from their sins, please, please do it. But not, your, not my will be done, but your will. Because Jesus, even though he was God in the flesh and he was completely God and completely man, he still struggled with, hey, I don't want to be nailed to a cross. I don't want to be tortured almost to death and then killed. If there's any other way that we can make this happen, please do so. But then he says, but not my will, your will. If that's the only way, then I'm in. And I think that's amazing because many people think that there's many ways that lead to God. But Jesus here in his prayer reveals that there wasn't. He prayed it. He said, Lord, if there's any other way. So Jesus surrenders all. But I, always th- I also thought about this. Kelly and I were reading this passage last week. We were sitting in, in our room and, and we had our little girl. And she, either I was holding her or she was holding her. I said, isn't it funny the, the, the kind of strength that is in the voice of a little child that's yours. You know, somebody that's sitting there looking at you saying, Daddy or Mommy or Auntie or whatever they call you, and they say, Hey, can I have this? And Jesus shows that he isn't just some like, Hey, you know, he wasn't just dispatched like a soldier where God said, Okay, you go down and die for them and I'll talk to you later. No, he was his father. He had a relationship and so God, when he looks up, Jesus looks up at him and says, Daddy, if there's any other way. And I just couldn't help but thinking about my little daughter when she can talk to me and when she says, Daddy, can I have this? Oh, just tugs at your heartstrings. And it shows me that because the way that he prayed, his father's heart was broken, that his son was going to have to go through this. And even at the end, when he's on the cross, God turns his face away as his son is taking on the sins of the world, he has to look away. And for the first time, Jesus experiences separation between him and his father. He didn't go two weeks before calling like I do. 
You know, he had constant fellowship. When he was alone, he was praying. That's what he did. And so that just pointed to me the fatherhood of God and his broken heart over sin so much that he was willing to see his own son go through that kind of torment. But then he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. See, he's warning him there again. And then he says to him, the spirit indeed is willing. Remember, he said, Lord, I won't, I won't deny you. He says, your spirit is willing, no doubt. But your flesh is so weak. Can't even pray for an hour. You're not going to be able to withstand this. Verse 39, again, he went away. Jesus goes away and he prays and he spoke the same words. He prayed, Lord, if there's any other way that this could pass for me, but not my will, but your will, that tells me that it's okay to pray something twice. It's okay. He says, keep asking, keep knocking. Sometimes God just wants to know if he can trust you with it. And the way he knows is if you, if you ask about it more than once. Now you guys know, if your kids only ask for something once, tomorrow they may not even care. But if they keep asking all the time, they might seriously want it. Doesn't mean they need it, but they might seriously want it. So Jesus goes and he prays again. Verse 40, and when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Can you imagine this? People that are following you and you're like, these are my guys. He comes back, they just fell asleep. Now, one of the versions in Luke says that they slept for sorrow. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever been so depressed over something you just couldn't do anything, but you're just like, I just want to take a nap. That's where these guys are. Their leader is getting ready and he told them over and over again, I'm going to be put to death. And they're like really bummed. So verse 41, then he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough, meaning it's it's sufficient. That's enough prayer. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So I'm going to leave it there this week. (laughs) It's kind of a cliffhanger. Next week, basically Judas is going to come back with the high priest's and all the guards, and they're going to be armed, and they're going to come for Jesus as if they were going into a, a, a hostage situation. They were going to take him out with a bunch of you know, weapons, but they're going to find him. He doesn't have a sword. He's not going to fight him. Peter's going to have a little mishap with his sword. But basically what's happening here is he's finally getting to that point where he's been walking his whole life towards death, and Jesus is going to lay down his life, and he's going to go through the whole process of being wrongfully accused. He's going to go through the whole process of being tortured almost to death, and then he's going to do the culmination of it. He's going to give it up, all of it. And so, uh, but I guess if there's one thing that I want to take away from this week, and I know I've kind of gone over and over on it, but do you listen for the voice of the Lord? Are you listening? Are you spending time this year? It's a new year. It's a new time to start and say, hey, where am I going to get my direction this year? Lord, what do you have for me this year? And that's kind of where I'm at with it anyway. Because I think oftentimes we think that the Lord is silent on things, and really it's just that we're not listening. Peter may have thought later, Lord, why didn't you warn me? You know, I don't think he did. I think he remembered exactly. As soon as the rooster crows, he looks and he sees, and Jesus is going, I told you. Not in a judgmental way. He's just like, "I, I warned you. It was coming. So what's the Lord trying to show you? What's he trying to lead you around to avoid some of the the pitfalls that we oftentimes pick. Sometimes we don't see them coming. We don't. But God, who sees all, wants to show us those things. So may we, in this new year, may we express and see 
Not only that we need him, but we, may we really depend upon him. May we see that need and go to him in everything. Even in this uh, sewage drainage line thing, I've been in that spot going, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't go to him and pray first. Praise the Lord for a godly wife that's like, hey, we need to pray. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, pray. Yeah, that's what we do. You know, so we need that. So thank you, Lord, for the reminder. Father, thank you so much for being willing to uh, be patient with us. Thank you for showing in the example with Peter that you, uh, you pick people who don't listen. Uh, but Lord, your desire is that we would begin to listen. So Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to listen. Teach us to pray that your will be done even when it's uncomfortable for us. Lord, thank you for this season where we celebrate your birth. But may we move on to the, uh, the things that pertain to life and godliness in Jesus. May we see the example that he lived and may we strive to be more like him. But Lord, may we not do it in our own strength, but may we trust in yours. May we trust in your direction. Father, show us how to follow you. Show us how to be obedient. And Father, more than anything, just as we're obedient, make billboards out of our lives. Make us uh, lights and lamps in this world. Uh, may we be uh, those who proclaim your life and your death and your resurrection uh, by the way that we live. And may you give us opportunities to speak and to talk about the hope and the peace that we have in Jesus because he was willing to suffer, the great love. Lord, uh, help us to show that love in practical ways to the people that we know. And Lord, uh, may you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name.